listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get going. Today is an exciting day. We are going to baptize about seven or eight folks. But before we do that, I just have a brief word. And yes, I mean that brief which is actually probably normal for everybody else. So hey, if you got a Bible, we're taking a break from our Ephesians series. In fact, the next two Sundays, we're going to be out of Ephesians. Uh, we started looking at Ephesians a couple weeks ago. Last few weeks have been heavy sledding. And so today we're going to uh, look at just at a classic, beautiful, encouraging passage from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 28. And then next week, as Reynolds mentioned, we are going to uh, look together as a church family and participate in something that uh, nationally for quite some time has been going on amongst many different Christian churches, this, this thing called Orphan Sunday, where churches come together to think about uh, the issue of adoption and our responsibility as Christians to, to care for uh, orphans and to be a culture of adoption. And so we're going to do that next Sunday, and then the following week we'll be back in in Ephesians, and we'll probably be in it for a while after that. But um, today, we have the great privilege to, to celebrate the gospel and to celebrate it by seeing it really, in a sense, put on display in front of us through the water baptism of several of our brothers and sisters here at Crosspoint. Well, here's what, here's what my plan is to do, is we're going to look at one of the classic passages in the New Testament, the Great Commission, right before Jesus ascends to heaven. And and uh, so what I thought we'd do, instead of reading just these four verses, I'm going to read and stop and read and stop, and, uh, and then we're, we're going to get going. I, th- I think today should be, you guys should be okay. Both the local college football teams won, right? We're seeing you guys up late watching. My team lost, USC lost in an overtime thriller to Stanford. Hey, I got my pep on. Come on, what's wrong with you guys? Let's go. Come on now. All right, well, here's, here's what we're going to do. Let me pray, and um, then, then we're going to read and uh, friends, today, every time we, we come together to celebrate the gospel and the scriptures, but I think in particular when we come together to celebrate the gospel through water baptism, it should be a time of renewing and energizing our faith. When we see this actually rather peculiar thing, where we will see some grown folks get dunked in water in front of a bunch of people. I mean, think about that. That is strange, but it is a beautiful and peculiar display of how Jesus resurrects us through the power of his word. And so today, let's lean forward in our seats and thank God for the most important thing in the universe, the power of the gospel. Let me pray, and then we'll read. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for these friends that are gathered here today, and thank you for the gospel most of all that, that resurrects the power of the good news of what you have done in Christ on the cross to reconcile, redeem, save, and bring to life people who were dead in their sins. Lord, this is nothing to yawn at. This is, this is not a ditch that we should fall in. This is not some news that should become rote in our lives. But Lord, this, this should cause awe and wonder, and confidence, and joy in our hearts. So as we look at this this beautiful passage at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and as we see some brothers and sisters 
proclaim the gospel through water baptism today. Lord, I pray that worship and joy and awe would swell up in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that people that are in this room who already know Jesus, that their affections would be stirred for him. And I pray for the friends of, of uh, just friends of mine that I may not know personally yet, but Lord, I love them because they're here. I love them because you created them. For our friends that are in this room that do not yet know Jesus, Lord, would you cause them, would you give them spiritual eyes? Would you give them a new heart whereby they can breathe and see and trust in Jesus? And today, Lord, would you be so kind as to maybe cause somebody to pass from death to life and become one of your children. Lord, we pray that you would do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, this text that we're reading today is on page 587. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, use that Bible, and you're welcome to take that Bible with you and just make it your own. We've got a bunch more uh, somewhere in some room in a box somewhere, and we'll just, we'll just we've got somebody here that checks this thing, everything that is, fills it, fills the rack. So take them all. That'd be awesome if one Sunday all of them were gone. <laughs> or maybe not. I mean, if you already got a Bible, just don't, don't just take one. All right, let's go. Matthew chapter 28. So here, here's where we are in the story of redemption here. Right, Jesus has, has, has lived on, on the earth for approximately 33 years or so. Right, God became flesh, and he lived a perfect and holy, completely obedient life to God. As Romans 8 says, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. So where all of us have failed God's law, Jesus came and lived in the flesh, God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. He lives a life. Hebrews says that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. It says in Hebrews 2 that he had to become like us in every way so that he could sympathize with us. And, and yet he's like us, but yet he's not like us. He's perfect in his, in his life here on this earth. And then he voluntarily lays down his life on the cross to be a substitute, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all those that would turn and trust in him. He lays down his perfect human life as God and as man on the cross, and he dies a death. And on the cross, he bears the justice and righteousness and wrath and punishment of God for human sin, and he satisfies it. He extinguishes it all. He doesn't just die to sort of be a moral example of servant leadership. He doesn't just die to create the possibility of salvation. He actually dies and secures life for his people. And he, he extinguishes the verdict. He extinguishes the consequences of sin for all those that would turn and trust in him. And he dies. He goes into a tomb. And he, he forgives sin through his death. And then... He doesn't just stay dead. He rises again in victory over sin and death. And so now he's, he's not just the one who has died for our punishment, but he's now the one who has been resurrected by the power of God the Father. So now, now he's alive. Now, now he doesn't just, just take the place for us in our death, but now he, he's alive. So now he, he now gives us his life. He, he gives us. He, 
He doesn't just take our sin now because he's alive, because he's defeated death and sin on the cross, and he's now alive. He's now able to give that which he has, which is life. And he now, in his position of exalted victory, calls all people everywhere to turn and trust from their own self-righteousness and from their sin and to trust in him. And now he spends a few weeks after his resurrection going around to people and speaking to them and going back to his disciples. And so now we have right here in these verses we're going to read just a snapshot of one of Jesus' last conversation, conversations with his followers. So let's read in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. This is stunning. Listen to these words. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And there's 11 and not 12 because remember Judas kind of flamed out there at the end. All right, so we got 11 um, not 12. Now the 11 disciples, these are men that had been with Jesus for three years. They'd seen him do some pretty significant things, feed the multitudes on several occasions. Occasions They'd seen him walk on water. They'd seen him raise a couple people from the dead, Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. And so now these 11, post-resurrection, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Verse 17, listen to this. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm strangely encouraged by that verse. I, I don't know about you guys, but these are people that have seen Jesus do some pretty miraculous things, and, and now they've seen him come back to life, right? And now he calls them to come meet him at this place. A few of them worship, and a few of them are like, well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe maybe you're who you claim to be. I mean, come on. Come on. Isn't that encouraging? I mean, these people were in the flesh. Like, they were eyewitnesses to Jesus. Like, they were on the sidelines holding the down markers, man. Like, they saw him run for the touch. I mean, come on. And they're like, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Can you give me a few more things? I mean, come on. Come on. That is really encouraging. Why is it encouraging? Because I, I sometimes wonder what in the world's going on. Sometimes I got my head in the sand. Sometimes I can't work myself out of a wet paper bag. And, and, this, and now we've got the 11. Some of these cats are doubting. I mean, we can be like snobs and, oh, well, how can they doubt? No, I turn that around. I'm like, yes, thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. So there's, there's room for, there's room, there's space for, for people to doubt and wrestle with God and wonder which way is up. Isn't that strangely encouraging? I I think it's magnificently encouraging. Do you doubt? Well, welcome to the group of people who are insecure. Welcome to the anxious band of Jesus followers, right? And isn't that weird how in church culture there's just a strange thing? I think it's particularly true here in the Bible Belt where everybody kind of gets a bulletin from somewhere. You know, you ask somebody if they're Christian, oh, I'm a Baptist, oh, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Presbyterian, no, do you love Jesus, right? Everybody's got some spiritual heritage that they sort of hang their hat on. And so we got this culture that sort of makes us think we have to live up to like this ethic of Christianity. And I actually think that stunts growth because, because sometimes, you know, we'll come to the Lord and then we wander into a church and all of a sudden we have to start acting like a perfect Christian, you know? But we're not. We're still, I mean, the 11 doubted. Uh, the 11 doubted. 
But we have church culture. We, you can't say, like, wait a minute, what, 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 what does that say that again? I mean, <gasps> and we, come on, there needs to be space for people to grow, right? Um, let's give you, I just thought of this analogy the other day. Maybe it'll help some of you, and maybe for some of you, you'll wonder why a person like me could um, actually parent children. But we, um, <laughs> we, had, we have a snake. Um, that was uh, handed, it was bequeathed to us by our youth pastor, our Will Hawk. And um, Will had this, uh, Will and Karen Ann had this snake a couple years ago, and they went away to a mission trip to Mexico, and so they needed somebody to babysit the snake for like three months, and we, because we have boys in our house, we, we readily volunteered. And then when they came back from Mexico, Karen Ann was having their baby, and she just didn't want the snake around, and so the snake kind of became ours. And we've had the snake. The snake's name is Mr. Bingle Squirt. It was named by Will. Um, anyway, whatever. <laughs> so we've had this snake for a couple years. And um, you know how they always say it's a little, like it's like a little constrictor, like a little boa constrictor, you know, just a little snake, no big deal. Um, but you know how they say that snakes will only grow to the size of the aquarium or whatever that they're in? I don't know if that's just some old wives' tale, but I'm going with it. I kind of need that to be true to fit my analogy. So anyway... <laughs> So this snake is in this aquarium, and we feed that joker. I mean, it's one of the highlights every other week. We go to Petmart, get a live mouse, drop it in there. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Um, and so anyway, had this, snake for, had this snake for a couple years. And uh, this summer, uh, my two oldest boys uh, went to uh, summer camp. And the snake lives in their bedroom, and, um, and every now and again, one of my two oldest boys, who shall remain nameless, um, likes to open up the cage and get the snake out and kind of play with it a little bit, which is fine. When people come over, he likes to, you know, show, kind of show it to them, scare them, and all that kind of stuff. So one time when he did that, he forgot to close the top of the aquarium, and the snake got out. Only thing is, we didn't really know that, because we wouldn't dare go up to their room when they're not, I mean, they were gone for two weeks over summer camp, and Jennifer and I aren't going up there for any, I mean, their room is, you know, it's a boy's room, it's kind of stinky and messy, and so then they come back home after camp, being gone for two weeks, and one of them, who shall remain nameless, looks at the top of the thing, and he goes, oh my gosh, Bingle Squirt got out, and so Jennifer and I realized we've been living in a house that there's a snake going around, wherever, I mean, it's, it's a free snake, and so we looked everywhere, we looked under every little nook and cranny, under every bed, under every little thing where a snake could possibly be, the snake was gone. And we do have a little doggy door um, on, uh, on the back door that's real low to the ground. And I guess evidently the snake got out. So we were just, we chalked it up. Either he's gone or he's dead and we're just going to start smelling him eventually. But um, Bingle Squirt's gone. He got outside. Bingle Squirt's free. Well, this last Saturday, uh, our dog is in the backyard and our dog is going crazy. And Joseph, my oldest son, comes running and he goes, Dad, you won't believe this. Bingle Squirt is right next to Louie's doghouse, and Louie and him are in a standoff going crazy. And so I went out there, and sure enough, there was a snake that looked a lot like Bingle Squirt, but it was actually bigger. <laughs> and, and he grew a little bit. And, and so there he was, him and Louie, our dog, are in a standoff. And so we promptly dumped if he's not if the snake's so stupid that he's not going to run away far away then he's then he deserves to be put back in the cage and so we picked him up and put him back in the aquarium but he got bigger he got bigger here's the deal I, this is a terrible story i don't know why i went on telling you all this we need to grow we need space to grow don't we 
right, if we're confined to these little aquariums of graceless church culture where everybody has to act like they have it together and where occasionally maybe the preacher drops a little mouse in your cage so you can feed, man. Maybe you can be a Christian in that environment, but man, you can't be a healthy Christian in that environment, can you? Come on, man. The 11 doubted, man. The 11 doubted. Come on, that is strangely, strangely encouraging. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 18. Gosh, I got off track there. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, 17, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Think about that statement. All authority. I think as Americans, we have sort of a little bit of a love-hate relationship with authority. You know, we like it when we have a powerful military and we win wars. But we're sort of suspicious of authority. In fact, that's kind of what this nation was founded on, was a a sort of healthy, in a sense, suspicion of overly assertive authority. And I think when we kind of bleed that over sometimes to our relationship with the Lord, we have this sort of notion that the authority the utter authority of God in our lives. I mean, we're happy for God to save us. We're happy for him to provide his son to die on the cross for us so that we might secure an eternal destiny with him. But I think we then get a little bit uncomfortable then with Jesus putting demands on our life to make our life after we have been born again to be all about him. And there's this sort of, I think, fear of authority in our hearts, and then there's just sort of this, the vestiges of our man-centeredness that rests in us, is that we think Jesus is there to do something for us so that then we can kind of live the life that we really wanted to live, and we don't necessarily think in terms of authority that Jesus speaks about here, that not only has he secured our salvation, but he has all authority now to command us to make our lives as individuals and our lives as a church collectively about his mission But here's the thing about Jesus' authority. Not only is it completely absolute in the life of a Christian and in a church, but it is always for our joy. It's always for our good. See, this is where when we think about earthly authority and we're suspicious of it, we need to lay that at the door when we come to Jesus because we oftentimes buy into this lie that when Jesus assumes complete and total authority in your life, which he has anyway, whether you're a Christian or not, we think that if we were to give him over sort of our hearts and our obedience, that somehow this is going to lead us into a less than joyful existence here on this earth as if, kind of this is a sort of strange sort of juxtaposition that we make in our minds between the Christian life and life in the world. That sort of life, sort of lived apart from Christ, is sort of pleasurable here and now. So I'm going to kind of live it up And then someday, you know, when the stakes get higher, I'll live for Jesus as if then i got to kind of grip my teeth and bear it and kind of mature and become an adult and just kind of, you know, go off to work and punch my clock as if that's some sort of joyless existence. In fact, I bet you some of you college students have wrestled with that very thing. I know I did. I thought, well, I I kind of acknowledge that there's a God and 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 I'm starting to believe the gospel message, but I still got a little bit of wild oats in me that I want to sow a little bit. You know, I kind of want to have a little bit of fun. As if the authority of God is there to lead us into anything but total and ultimate joy. See, that's the lie. 
We see his authority, our authority. No, friends, the good news of the gospel isn't just that Jesus dies to secure our eternity. It's that here and now, even Jesus gives us life and a mission that is altogether more satisfying than any broken counterfeit that this world has to offer. And friends, when you begin to see that, when you begin to see the beauty and the joy and the preferability of Jesus over and against anything that this world has to offer, friends, oh, that's when he becomes your Lord and King. That's when he becomes the one that with your whole heart you want to serve. That's when you want to give your life away to the glory of God's name, even here in this life. And so Jesus is speaking to these, these, these 11 cats, some of them who are doubting, and instead of slapping them around, he, he speaks to them with this sort of fierce gentleness, and he says, all authority has been given to me. Now go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Just look at that phrase there briefly before I conclude. Make disciples of all nations. And that, that is kind of part of Christian vernacular. And I think that this verse is so well known by most of us that we kind of lose just sort of the beauty and the raw grittiness of what Jesus is calling us to here. And, and I think probably in church culture we've sort of reduced that down to a select few who are sort of paid to preach the gospel and we kind of support it by maybe giving occasionally to the work of the Lord, joining a local church, hearing the gospel preached, and, and just kind of generally being along there to support. But that's not really just what is in view here. There's this command to the people of God to be this sort of missional force, to be this redeemed city, to be this redeemed group of people, and to them together, to do the the gritty work of inviting people to be disciples, to invite them to be followers of Jesus, to invite them to be learners of Jesus, to invite them to be people who come and trust in Jesus. This beautiful work of evangelism and church life, this, this work of proclaiming what Jesus has done and then inviting people along to live life together. Friends, it's, it's gritty work. It's gritty work. I mean, think about it here. We have pardoned rebels who are still in process, some of them doubting even after having seen it firsthand, are now commissioned, are now given the task to invite other people that are still in rebellion to lay down their arms against the king of the universe. Friends, that is gritty, it's messy, and it's beautiful. And it's the very thing that Jesus calls not just me and not just people who are paid by the church to do ministry, but he calls us all to do it, to all sort of celebrate together, to live life in such a way, to interact, to, to be strong for one another, to forgive one another's sin, to create a culture of grace, to actually get to know people, to, to be that type of redemptive community that just makes the gospel irresistible to an onlooking community. Think about this, this verse. Let me go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and then... And then we'll be done pretty quick. I just want to read this, this beautiful picture of what the church should look like as they make disciples together, as they talk about Jesus, as they 
proclaim what Jesus has done and as they invite other people to live for Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, so you do have these in the New Testament. You do have these elders, pastors, evangelists, preachers that seem to be set apart for uh, a particular emphasis of the proclamation of the teaching of the apostles, which we know of now as the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. And he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In other words, be this type of redeemed people who by virtue of how you live together, how you gather together, how you worship Jesus together, how you interact with one another graciously, how you love one another, how you forgive quickly, how you don't gossip, how you, how you, how you just sort of lay down your lives collectively, modeling what Christ did for you towards one another. As you do that, literally, we as a church become the force that God uses, we become the display, we become collectively the proclamation, we become the embodiment of the very gospel that we preach. So friends, you see how just kind of coming here and being involved and getting in each other's lives and speaking words of life to one another is in and of itself part of gospel work? That this is part of making disciples even what we're doing here to proclaim and live out the gospel together. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises that he will be with his people and with his church to guarantee the success of the very thing that he has commanded them to do. And today, in just a moment, we get to see that gospel that we preach and that we love and that we cling to so dearly. We get to see it, in a real sense, sort of on display through the baptism of seven of our brothers and sisters here at Cross Point. Think about the peculiarity of baptism. I want you just as my final thought here to think about really what we're about to do. Some grown folks are about to let another grown person dunk them in water. And we, we read, as Kwame read earlier in Romans 6, this is a picture. Why? Why would Christians do such a peculiar thing? Well, Jesus commands it as a picture that we have died. We go down under the waters of sin and rebellion and water, the water of our sin and rebellion drowns us. 
We weren't meant to breathe those things. And when we breathe them in, they kill our spiritual lungs. But the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus, by his work on the cross, bears the punishment for our sins, and he brings us up out of the water, even as he resurrected to new life himself, he brings us up out of the water in victorious, resurrected life now to live, as Kwame read, in the newness of life. And now you have a bunch of rational people gathered together in a room to watch adults get dunked in water as a peculiar display of the saving work of God to make much of himself through his son's work on the cross. Friends, this should, this should encourage us, but it should also humble us. Man, let's not try and make Christianity too practical here. That's why it does, that's why it never, that's why you can draw a crowd by teaching Christianity as some moral principle that will make your life better, but ultimately it kind of falls down at the end. That's not what the message of the cross is. The message of the cross is this peculiar, strange, unbelievably surprising message of God's grace that you're dead in water, but Jesus brings you back to life now to live to the newness of life so that you, pardon trouble, can be part of this great plan of God to make disciples of all people, baptizing them, showing again the gospel in lives over and over and over again. Friends, that's peculiar, it's strange, and it is unbelievably glorious. And so I'm going to pray. And then some folks are going to come and we are going to watch them be baptized. And friends, this is not the 18th green at Augusta, right? That's not what this is. This is a place where celebration and joy is not only uh, acceptable, I think even it is commanded by the scriptures that we would revel together, that we would glory in the God of our salvation as we watch some friends be baptized, and put the gospel on display in front of us. Let me pray, Lord, even now, as we are about to see the gospel put on display, uh, Father, for the Christian that's in this room whose heart is distracted, his life is laden down with responsibilities and business and life, and his faith in you has become sort of rote, and just kind of worn out. Lord, would you get a hold of my brother or sister that's there and would you stun them again with your grace as they watch their brothers and sisters humble themselves and proclaim your goodness. Lord, for uh, my friends that are in this room, as I prayed at the beginning, who do not know you, would you let them see that the message of Christianity is not how that you might live a better life, but the message of Christianity is how you might be brought back to life. That apart from you, we are condemned sinners, separated from you, staring down the barrel of an eternity away from you, but that by your amazing, rich, and free grace, you bring life and the greatest need of every person in this room, the greatest
greatest need, their greatest need, that person who's not trusted in you yet, Lord, their greatest need is not some tips on how to improve their marriage or how to square their life away and make it a little bit better, but their greatest need is to have their rebellion forgiven by the one that they have rebelled against and that their only hope of that rebellion being forgiven is through the work of the perfect one, Jesus, on the cross. Lord, I pray that even today as these friends are being baptized, that some person in this room would see a picture of your gospel and that they would turn from their sin and turn in faith towards Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would do this because this is what you do. You are pleased to make much of yourself by saving people. And friend, if that's you, as we're being baptized, if you don't believe in Jesus, or maybe you feel yourself believing in Jesus for the first time even now, friends, look to Jesus, look to Christ, look to him. Believe in him, trust in him. Lay down your arms, lay down your sword, lay down your rebellion against the king and look to Jesus and receive him even now. Lord, we pray that you do these things as we celebrate your gospel together. In Jesus' name, amen.